Section 42 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book Twelve, Chapters Four through six. Chapter four. The Adventure of a Beggar Man. Just as Partridge had uttered that good and pious doctrine, with which the last chapter concluded, they arrived at another crossway, when a lame fellow in rags asked them for alms, upon which Partridge gave him a severe rebuke, saying, Every parish ought to keep their own poor. Jones then fell a-laughing, and asked Partridge, If he was not ashamed, with so much charity in his mouth, To have no charity in his heart. Your religion, says he, serves you only for an excuse for your faults, But is no incentive to your virtue. Can any man who is really a Christian, abstain from relieving one of his brethren in such a miserable condition, and, at the same time, putting his hand in his pocket, he gave the poor object a shilling. Master, cries the fellow, after thanking him, I have a curious thing here in my pocket, which I found about two miles off, if your worship will please to buy it. I should not venture to pull it out to every one, but, as you are so good a gentleman, and so kind to the poor, you won't suspect a man of being a thief only because he is poor. He then pulled out a little gilt pocket-book, and delivered it into the hands of Jones. Jones presently opened it, and, guess, reader, what he felt saw in the first page the words Sophia Western, written by her own fair hand. He no sooner read the name than he pressed it close to his lips, nor could he avoid falling into some very frantic raptures, notwithstanding his company. But perhaps these very raptures made him forget he was not alone. While Jones was kissing and mumbling the book, as if he had an excellent brown-buttered crust in his mouth, or as if he had really been a bookworm, or an author who had nothing to eat but his own works, a piece of paper fell from its leaves to the ground, which Partridge took up and delivered to Jones, who presently perceived it to be a bank-bill, it was indeed the very bill which Western had given his daughter the night before her departure, and a Jew would have jumped to purchase it at five shillings less than one hundred pounds. The eyes of Partridge sparkled at this news, which Jones now proclaimed aloud, and so did, although with somewhat a different aspect, those of the poor fellow who had found the book, and who, I hope from a principle of honesty, had never opened it, 
but we should not deal honestly by the reader if we omitted to inform him of a circumstance which may be here a little material, viz. that the fellow could not read. Jones, who had felt nothing but pure joy and transport from the finding the book, was affected with a mixture of concern at this new discovery, for his imagination instantly suggested to him that the owner of the bill might possibly want it before he should be able to convey it to her. He then acquainted the reader that he knew the lady to whom the book belonged, and would endeavour to find her out as soon as possible, and return it her. The pocket-book was a late present from Mrs. Western to her niece. It had cost five-and-twenty shillings, having been bought of a celebrated toyman. But the real value of the silver which it contained in its clasp was about eighteen pence, and that price the said toyman, as it was altogether as good as when it first issued from the shop, would now have given for it. A prudent person would, however, have taken proper advantage of the ignorance of this fellow, and would not have offered more than a shilling, or perhaps sixpence, for it. Nay, some perhaps would have given nothing, and left the fellow to his action of trover, which some learned sergeants may doubt whether he could, under these circumstances, have maintained. Jones, on the contrary, whose character was on the outside of generosity, and may perhaps not very unjustly have been suspected of extravagance, without any hesitation gave a guinea in exchange for the book. The poor man, who had not for a long time before been possessed of so much treasure, gave Mr. Jones a thousand thanks, and discovered little less of transport in his muscles than Jones had before shown when he had first read the name of Sophia Western. The fellow very readily agreed to attend our travellers to the place where he had found the pocket-book. Together, therefore, they proceeded directly thither, but not so fast as Mr. Jones desired, for his guide, unfortunately, happened to be lame, and could not possibly travel faster than a mile an hour. As this place, therefore, was at above three miles' distance, though the fellow had said otherwise, the reader need not be acquainted how long they were in walking it. Jones opened the book a hundred times during their walk, kissed it as often, talked much to himself, and very little to his companions, at all which the guide expressed some signs of astonishment to Partridge, who more than once shook his head, and cried, Poor gentleman, orandum est utsit mens sana incopore sano. At length they arrived at the very spot where Sophia unhappily dropped the pocket-book, and where the fellow had as happily found it. Here Jones offered to take leave of his guide, and to improve his pace. But the fellow, 
in whom that violent surprise and joy, which the first receipt of the guinea had occasioned, was now considerably abated, and who had now had sufficient time to recollect himself, put on a discontented look, and scratching his head said, he hoped his worship would give him something more. "'Your worship,' said he, "'will, I hope, take it into your consideration "'that if I had not been honest, "'I might have kept the whole.' "'And, indeed, this the reader must confess to have been true. "'If the paper there,' said he, "'be worth one hundred pounds, "'I am sure the finding it deserves more than a guinea. "'Besides, suppose your worship should never see the lady, nor give it her, and though your worship looks and talks very much like a gentleman, yet I have only your worship's bare word, and certainly if the right owner beant to be found, it all belongs to the first finder. I hope your worship will consider of all these matters. I am but a poor man, and therefore don't desire to have all but it is but reasonable I should have my share. Your worship looks like a good man, and, I hope, will consider my honesty, for I might have kept every farthing, and nobody ever the wiser. I promise thee upon my honour, cries Jones, that I know the right owner, and will restore it her. Nay, your worship, answered the fellow, may do as you please as to that. If you will but give me my share, that is, one half of the money, your honour may keep the rest, if you please. And concluded with swearing, by a very vehement oath, that he would never mention a syllable of it to any man living. Looky, friend, cries Jones, the right owner shall certainly have again all that she lost, and as for any further gratuity, I really cannot give it you at present, but let me know your name, and where you live, and it is more than possible that you may hereafter have further reason to rejoice at this morning's adventure. I don't know what you mean by venture, cries the fellow, it seems to me I must venture whether you will return the lady her money or no. But I hope your worship will consider. Come, come, said Partridge, tell his honour your name, and where you may be found. I warrant you will never repent having put the money into his hands. The fellow, seeing no hopes of recovering the possession of the pocket-book, at last complied in giving in his name and place of abode, which Jones writ upon a piece of paper with the pencil of Sophia, and then, placing the paper in the same page where she had writ her name, he cried out, There, friend, you are the happiest man alive. I have joined your name to that of an angel. I don't know anything about angels, answered the fellow, but I wish you would give me a little more money, or else return me the pocket-book. Partridge now waxed wrath. He called the poor cripple by several vile and opprobrious names, and was absolutely proceeding to beat him, 
but Jones would not suffer any such thing, and now telling the fellow he would certainly find some opportunity of serving him, Mr. Jones departed as fast as his heels would carry him, and Partridge, into whom the thoughts of the hundred pound had infused new spirits, followed his leader, while the man, who was obliged to stay behind, fell to cursing them both, as well as his parents. For had they, says he, sent me to charity school to learn to write and read and cast accounts, I should have known the value of these matters, as well as other people. CHAPTER Five. Containing more adventures which Mr. Jones and his companion met on the road. Our travellers now walked so fast that they had very little time or breath for conversation. Jones meditating all the way on Sophia and Partridge on the bank bill, which, though it gave him some pleasure, caused him at the same time to repine at fortune, which in all his walks had never given him such an opportunity of showing his honesty. They had proceeded above three miles, when Partridge, being unable any longer to keep up with Jones, called to him, and begged him a little to slacken his pace. With this he was the more ready to comply, as he had for some time lost the footsteps of the horses, which the thaw had enabled him to trace for several miles, and he was now upon a wide common, where were several roads. He here, therefore, stopped to consider which of these roads he should pursue, when, on a sudden, they heard the noise of a drum that seemed at no great distance, this sound presently alarmed the fears of Partridge, and he cried out, Lord, have mercy upon us all. They are certainly a-coming. Who is coming? cries Jones, for fear had long since given place to softer ideas in his mind, and since his adventure with the lame man, he had been totally intent on pursuing Sophia, without entertaining one thought of an enemy. Who? cries Partridge. Why, the rebels! But why should I call them rebels? They may be very honest, gentlemen, for anything I know to the contrary. The devil take him that affronts them, I say. I am sure, if they have nothing to say to me, I will have nothing to say to them, but in a civil way. For heaven's sake, sir, don't affront them, if they should come, and perhaps they may do us no harm. But would it not be the wiser way to creep into some of yonder bushes, till they are gone by? What can two unarmed men do, perhaps, against fifty thousand? Certainly nobody but a madman, I hope your honour is not offended, but certainly no man who hath Mens sana in corpore sano. Here Jones interrupted this torrent of eloquence, which fear had inspired, saying, That by the drum he perceived they were near some town. 
He then made directly towards the place whence the noise proceeded, bidding Partridge take courage, for that he would lead him into no danger, and adding it was impossible that the rebels should be so near. Partridge was a little comforted with this last assurance, and though he would more gladly have gone the contrary way, he followed his leader, his heart beating time, but not after the manner of heroes, to the music of the drum, which ceased not till they had traversed the common, and were come into a narrow lane. And now Partridge, who kept even pace with Jones, discovered something painted flying in the air, a very few yards before him, which, fancying to be the colours of the enemy, he fell a-bellowing, O oh, Lord, sir, here they are! There is the crown and coffin! O oh, Lord, I never saw anything so terrible, and we are within gunshot of them already! Jones no sooner looked up, than he plainly perceived what it was which Partridge had thus mistaken. Partridge, says he, I fancy you will be able to engage this whole army yourself, for, by the colours, I guess what the drum was which we heard before, and which beats up, for recruits, to a puppet-show. A puppet-show? answered Partridge, with most eager transport. And is it really no more than that? I love a puppet-show of all the pastimes upon earth. Do, good sir, let us tarry and see it. Besides, I am quite famished to death, for it is now almost dark, and I have not eat a morsel since three o'clock in the morning. They now arrived at an inn, or indeed an ale-house, where Jones was prevailed upon to stop, the rather as he had no longer any assurance of being in the road he desired. They walked both directly into the kitchen, where Jones began to inquire if no ladies had passed that way in the morning, and Partridge as eagerly examined into the state of their provisions, and indeed his inquiry met with the better success. For Jones could not hear news of Sophia, but Partridge, to his great satisfaction, found good reason to expect very shortly the agreeable sight of an excellent smoking dish of eggs and bacon. In strong and healthy constitutions, love hath a very different effect from what it causes in the puny part of the species. In the latter, it generally destroys all that appetite which tends towards the conservation of the individual. But, in the former, though it often induces forgetfulness, and a neglect of food, as well as of everything else, yet place a good piece of well-powdered buttock before a hungry lover, and he seldom fails very handsomely to play his part. Thus it happened in the present case, for though Jones perhaps wanted a prompter, and might have travelled much farther had he been alone, 
with an empty stomach, yet no sooner did he sit down to the bacon and eggs than he fell to as heartily and voraciously as Partridge himself. Before our travellers had finished their dinner, night came on, and as the moon was now past the full, it was extremely dark. Partridge, therefore, prevailed on Jones to stay and see the puppet-show, which was just going to begin, and to which they were very eagerly invited by the master of the said show, who declared that his figures were the finest which the world had ever produced, and that they had given great satisfaction to all the quality in every town in England. The puppet-show was performed with great regularity and decency. It was called the fine and serious part of the provoked husband, and it was indeed a very grave and solemn entertainment, without any low wit or humour, or jests, or, to do it no more than justice, without anything which could provoke a laugh. The audience were all highly pleased. A grave matron told the master she would bring her two daughters the next night, as he did not show any stuff, and an attorney's clerk and an excise man both declared that the characters of Lord and Lady Townley were well preserved, and highly in nature. Partridge likewise concurred with this opinion. The master was so elated with these encomiums that he could not refrain from adding some more of his own. He said, The present age was not improved in anything so much as in their puppet shows, which, by throwing out Punch and his wife Joan, and such idle trumpery, were at last brought to be a rational entertainment. I remember, said he, when I first took to the business, there was a great deal of low stuff that did very well to make folks laugh, but was never calculated to improve the morals of young people, which certainly ought to be principally aimed at in every puppet show. For why may not good and instructive lessons be conveyed this way, as well as any other? My figures are as big as the life, and they represent the life in every particular, and I question not but people rise from my little drama as much improved as they do from the great. I would by no means degrade the ingenuity of your profession, answered Jones, but I should have been glad to have seen my old acquaintance Master Punch for all that, and so far from improving, I think by leaving out him and his merry wife Joan, you have spoiled your puppet-show. The dancer of wires conceived an immediate and high contempt for Jones from these words, and with much disdain in his countenance, he replied, Very probably, sir, that may be your opinion, 
but I have the satisfaction to know the best judges differ from you, and it is impossible to please every taste. I confess, indeed, some of the quality at Bath, two or three years ago, wanted mightily to bring punch again upon the stage. I believe I lost some money for not agreeing to it, but let others do as they will. A little matter shall never bribe me to degrade my own profession, nor will I ever willingly consent to the spoiling the decency and regularity of my stage by introducing any such low stuff upon it. Right, friend, cries the clerk, you are very right. Always avoid what is low. There are several of my acquaintance in London who are resolved to drive everything which is low from the stage. Nothing can be more proper, cries the excise man, pulling his pipe from his mouth. I remember, added he, for I then lived with my lord, I was in the footman's gallery the night when this play of the provoked husband was acted first. There was a great deal of low stuff in it about a country gentleman come up to town to stand for Parliament man, and there they brought a parcel of his servants upon the stage. His coachman, I remember, particularly. But the gentleman in our gallery could not bear anything so low, and they damned it. I observe, friend, you have left all that matter out, and you are to be commended for it. Nay, gentlemen, cries Jones, I can never maintain my opinion against so many. Indeed, if the generality of his audience dislike him, the learned gentleman who conducts the show might have done very right in dismissing Punch from his service. The master of the show then began a second harangue, and said much of the great force of example, and how much the inferior part of mankind would be deterred from vice by observing how odious it was in their superiors, when he was unluckily interrupted by an incident which, though perhaps we might have omitted it at another time, we cannot help relating at present, but not in this chapter. CHAPTER six, From which it may be inferred that the best things are liable to be misunderstood and misinterpreted. A violent uproar now arose in the entry, where my landlady was well cuffing her maid, both with her fist and tongue. She had indeed missed the wench from her employment, and, after a little search, had found her on the puppet-show stage, in company with the merry Andrew, and in a situation not very proper to be described. Though Grace, for that was her name, had forfeited all title to modesty, yet had she not impudence enough to deny a fact in which she was actually surprised. She therefore took another turn, 
and attempted to mitigate the offence. "'Why do you beat me in this manner, mistress?' cries the wench. "'If you do not like my doings, you may turn me away. "'If I am a whore,' for the other had liberally bestowed that appellation on her, "'my betters are so well as I. "'What was the fine lady in the puppet-show just now? "'I suppose she did not lie all night out from her husband for nothing.' The landlady now burst into the kitchen, and fell foul on both her husband and the poor puppet-mover. "'Here, husband,' says she, "'you must see the consequence of harboring these people in your house. If one doth draw a little drink the more for them, one is hardly made amends for the litter they make, and then to have one's house made a body-house of by such lousy vermin. In short, I desire you would be gone to-morrow morning, for I will tolerate no more such doings. It is only the way to teach our servants idleness and nonsense, for, to be sure, nothing better can be learned by such idle shows as these. I remember when puppet-shows were made of good scripture-stories, as Jephna's rash vow, and such good things, and when wicked people were carried away by the devil. There were some sense in those matters, but, as the parson told us last Sunday, nobody believes in the devil nowadays, and here you bring about a parcel of puppets, dressed up like lords and ladies, only to turn the heads of poor country wenches, and when their heads are once turned topsy-turvy, no wonder everything else is so. Virgil, I think, tells us that when the mob are assembled in a riotous and tumultuous manner, and all sorts of missile weapons fly about, if a man of gravity and authority appears among them, the tumult is presently appeased. And the mob which, when collected into one body, may be well compared to an ass, erect their long ears at the grave man's discourse. On the contrary, when a set of grave men and philosophers are disputing, when wisdom herself may, in a manner, be considered as present, and administering arguments to the disputants, should a tumult arise from the mob, or should one scold, who is herself equal in noise to a mighty mob, appear among the said philosophers, their disputes cease in a moment. Wisdom no longer performs her ministerial office, and the attention of every one is immediately attracted by the scold alone. Thus the uproar aforesaid, and the arrival of the landlady, silenced the master of the puppet-show, and put a speedy and final end to that grave and solemn harangue, of which we have given the reader a sufficient taste already. Nothing, indeed, could have happened so very inopportune as this accident. The most wanton malice of fortune could not have contrived such another stratagem to confound the poor fellow, 
while he was so triumphantly discanting on the good morals inculcated by his exhibitions. His mouth was now as effectually stopped as that of quack must be, if, in the midst of a declamation of the great virtues of his pills and powders, the corpse of one of his martyrs should be brought forth, and deposited before the stage, as a testimony of his skill. Instead, therefore, of answering my lady, the puppet-show man ran out to punish his merry Andrew, and now the moon beginning to put forth her silver light, as the poets call it, though she looked at that time more like a piece of copper, Jones called for his reckoning, and ordered Partridge, whom my landlady had just awaked from a profound nap, to prepare for his journey. But Partridge, having lately carried two points, as my reader hath seen before, was emboldened to attempt a third, which was to prevail with Jones to take up a lodging that evening in the house where he then was. He introduced this with an affected surprise at the intention which Mr. Jones declared of removing, and after urging many excellent arguments against it, he at last insisted strongly that it could be of no manner of purpose whatever, for that, unless Jones knew which way the lady was gone, every step he took might very possibly lead him the farther from her. "'For you find, sir,' said he, "'by all the people in the house, that she is not gone this way. How much better, therefore, would it be to stay till morning, where we may expect to meet with somebody to inquire of?' This last argument had indeed some effect on Jones, and while he was weighing it, the landlord threw all the rhetoric of which he was master into the same scale. "'Sure, sir,' said he, "'your servant gives you most excellent advice. For who would travel by night at this time of the year?' He then began in the usual style to trumpet forth the excellent accommodation which his house afforded, and my landlady likewise opened on the occasion, but not to detain the reader with what is common to every host and hostess. It is sufficient to tell him Jones was at last prevailed on to stay, and refresh himself with a few hours' rest, which indeed he very much wanted, for he had hardly shut his eyes since he had left the inn where the accident of the broken head had happened. As soon as Jones had taken a resolution to proceed no farther that night, he presently retired to rest, with his two bedfellows, the pocket-book and the muff. But Partridge, who at several times had refreshed himself with several naps, was more inclined to eating than to sleeping, and more to drinking than to either. And now the storm which Grace had raised being at an end, and my landlady being again reconciled to the puppet-man, who on his side forgave the indecent reflections which the good woman in her passion had cast on his performances, 
a face of perfect peace and tranquillity reigned in the kitchen, where sat assembled round the fire the landlord and landlady of the house, the master of the puppet show, the attorney's clerk, the excise man, and the ingenious Mr. Partridge, in which company passed the agreeable conversation which will be found in the next chapter. End of section 42 Read by Dennis Sayers and Modesto, California For LibriVox Spring 2008